So today is the longest day of the year. The sun has journeyed, I mean the earth has journeyed around the sun with its axis, the, the axis in the northern hemisphere, the part we are pointing most now directly tonight toward the sun, kind of spinning around. And our age is, of course, just how many times we've hung on this thing as we've gone around the sun. And here we are at the summer solstice. And I just got back last night from this men's retreat, trying to figure out what to do today. Had I been around this last week um, more, I would have wanted to prepare or create some kind of more uh, formal ritual, maybe to climb the hill and watch the sunset. So next year, I promise we'll do something a little more symbolic for that. But instead tonight I have a story about light and dark. Um, and finding the light that we see around us in summer days, this is the beginning of summer, are beautiful and they're filled with light. Um, What becomes important in our spiritual life is to find the source of that light and to find that source within ourselves. When we come to spiritual practice, the idea is not to see the light, although it's beautiful, in the times of the summer and the trees reflect it and the the grasses, the golden grasses in the summer reflect the light and the beautiful scenery as you drive over the bay, the bridges in the bay and so forth. It's not so much to see it, although that's beautiful in its own right, but to be permeated by it, to sense that light as ourselves, to be, to become, to be the light. In fact, in some of the very last statements, the last words of the Buddha, he said to people, be a lamp, be a light. So this talk this evening is a story about finding the light. And it's one of the oldest stories in India and it comes from the time of the Buddha or before when he was a bodhisattva. Every particle of everything, a poem, every particle of everything, rock, water, flower, human being, has been together in the same place, flaming in the heart of one ancient sun before the earth came flying out of it. The irises in your eyes, the tissues of the roses, the slow giant rocks, in the mountain hearts, were all born flaming, locked in the sun as it drifted like a light on the dark water. So what does it mean to find that light within ourselves, that we are? Once a long time ago, before time was measured in its usual current ways, before electric wristwatches and digital clocks and atomic clocks. But not so long ago that there still weren't fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. There was a village in India. And in this village there was a man who became a successful merchant. That's the old word for businessman. And he 
enacted his role in the community. He became a member of the temple and the rotary or whatever they had in India in those days, right? And raised his family. And as he got older, he began to think, as older people do, about the other world. That's not this world of form, because that's where we're headed back to. And so he decided, maybe as a kind of insurance, to give a lot to the temple. And he went and he made a big public display of it. He said, I'm going to give my gold and all my cattle, all I own to the temple. Now his son, who was there witnessing this, a young man named Nachiketa, Nachiketa, looked at this, and it didn't feel quite right to him. There was something not quite right, a little bit of hypocrisy. He felt like his father was doing it for kind of spiritual insurance purposes, you know. Remember the story of W.C. Fields, who was not only a comedian and drunkard, but a, a uh, lifelong atheist. Apparently, he was in his hospital bed near death when a friend came to visit him and walked in the room and there was W.C. Fields reading the Bible. <laughs> Quickly stashed it under the blanket and his friend came and he said, did I see you reading the Bible? And W.C. Fields looked up and he said, just looking for loopholes. <laughs> so there was something about this boy this son who felt the hypocrisy in that kind of religion, which was religion for insurance purposes. And the hypocrisy that can be there in so many ways in our society. The hypocrisy that we live with democratic laws and yet still have a fundamentally racist society. If you look at it, it's still there and it's there in so many ways and places in our society. It is. And there's incredible pain because of it. The hypocrisy of, well here, Bill Clinton may be determined never to lie to you, but the White House machinery from administration to administration is programmed for the faking of the president, his letters, messages, his personal signature. Bill Clinton had to decide when he came in whether to use the automatic signature machines. Under President Carter, there were 100,000 simulations of his signature. This was much higher than the 10,000 under Johnson and the 5,000 under Kennedy. Now it's 100,000 a month. Suppose a letter processed by the Clinton mailroom was from a little girl in the fourth grade. The child writes the president about her admiration for Chelsea and about how the cat socks is just like her own cat. Under the system that Bill Clinton inherited, the letter goes to one of 20 White House mail analysts who check the code index and assign it number PS14, the stock category for chatty letters from children. The letter goes to the robotype room for that same computerized message that all PS14s get. And thousands of other letters, it gets turned out with the signature. But not only children are misled. A widow of a policeman killed on duty automatically gets PD, 
a letter signed sincerely with the President's automated signature, which says, May God give you the strength to bear the burden of your loss. So Nachiketa looked around at his father and the world, and he didn't see it looking as sweet as it was put out to be. The law in its majestic equality forbids both kings and beggars from sleeping under bridges, says Anatole France. And the good life, the life with no suffering that we're promised, has in it as well much unhappiness. The Buddha said that what began him teaching was the compassion of seeing human beings everywhere seeking happiness and doing the very things that bring them unhappiness. So the son, Nachiketa, publicly taunted his father. You know how it is with fathers and sons, probably. And he said, that's just a bunch of old cows you're given and some money. What's that worth? You want your name big on the temple, don't you, Dad? But he didn't do it privately. He did it in public. He said, you're not giving all you own anyway. What about me, your son? And he did it in such an obnoxious way, which of course was his intention, that his father finally looked at him and said, drop dead. Got really angry. Or what he said quite literally is, I give you, I give you to death. And the young man said, fine. He was one of those young men, as young men are, who was looking for a challenge, looking for danger. And you know, when young men don't have danger or challenges offered to them, when there isn't initiation that is offered to prove themselves, then they go bungee jumping, or they do gang wars in the streets to prove who's the toughest and who's really a man. And it's a very sad thing to live in a culture where young men have to shoot one another on the streets because there's nothing better offered to them to prove their spirit and their soul and their heart. It's true for young women too, in their way. So he said, fine, I'll go find him. Now, if one goes to look for death, one doesn't have to go very far. Birth and death are here in every breath, you know, in the birth of each new day, in the birth of each thought. But if you really want to face death, again, It's not necessary to travel someplace outside, but simply to sit and wait, and death will come to visit you. What Nachiketa did is he sat down for three days, and he decided he would not move until he had come to the place of death. It's a very interesting thing. didn't go anywhere at all. When you enter a Zen temple, you want to practice, before they let you in the gates, you have to prove your sincerity. And so you must do what's called Tangario. In the old days it meant sitting for a number of days outside the temple in the snow in winter, if it was winter, and not moving, just sitting there day after day until they saw your sincerity. And then they'd say, okay, this person means business, you can come in. In the, some of the monasteries where I practiced, there was a teaching of mastering a posture, which we did, which is that you would sit 
for 12 or 18 or 24 hours and just not get up, not move at all. And there would be fire and pain and every kind of imagining and thought and you feel like you're dying and all of this stuff and you just sit or stand. I stood for 18 hours in one place and just stood there and felt like my body was burning up and that was just the beginning of it. So he did the same thing. You don't have to go far. He simply sat and didn't move. It's also why retreats can be such a wonderful thing for people. But not, not painful like that, but a day and a night and a day and a night for a week or ten days of sitting and walking, there's a kind of staying with yourself that becomes an initiation into something deeper. They're wonderful to do. So he sat and he waited. And if one does, of course, then he arrived finally at the kingdom of death. Seeking Lord Yama, the king of death, who administers the law. But he wasn't there. They said, he's not here. Only his assistants were there. They said, he's out collecting rent. You know what that means, right? And the ones who greeted him were pestilence, war, famine, depression. They said, what do you want? Can we help you? He said, I've come to see Lord Yama. I said, well, not many people come here to see death. Usually they try and flee. This is an unusual young man said, he's not here, he won't be back for a while. The young man said, fine, I'll wait, however long it takes. An unusual young man. So death finally returned, and they said, there's been a young man sitting here without moving for three days. He didn't run away, but he came to see you. Death said, how long has he been here? Three days. So he went up to the young man, and he welcomed him. He said, welcome to my kingdom. And forgive my rudeness, I was a bit busy collecting, but now I'm back. And because you have waited for three days, for each of these days I offer you a boon, a blessing as my way of making up for my rudeness. See what happens with that kind of sincerity? There's a boon that comes, there's a blessing that comes. So now the young man gets to ask three boons from death. What will he ask? The first boon that he asks for is forgiveness. He's a very wise young man. He says, let my father's heart be free of anger so that he may see me when I return as the day I was born, his beautiful son. And death said, granted. You see, when we begin to seek that light within ourselves, what's necessary first is a deep healing, a healing of the grief that we carry, of the pain from the inevitable betrayals of life. There's no one who hasn't been betrayed. And all the barriers to our heart that have come from the pain that we've encountered or suffered. So he asks forgiveness, mercy, blessing. Forgiveness is an amazing thing. I think I mentioned it last week. Without forgiveness, we would be doomed to simply repeat the past over and over and over again, as in Bosnia or Armenia or 
our inner cities or wherever, when we can't get past the past, past what's happened, we just repeat it again and again and again and again. My fathers did it to your fathers, or my ancestors did it to yours, and we repeat it. You did it to me, and now I will do it back to you. And there's no possibility of anything new without forgiveness. It is the light of life. And there's so much to forgive because there's so much loss. Everything changes. Spring follows winter. Summer follows spring. Now, sometimes we only come to this when we only come to this understanding of mercy when we felt the pain that we've carried for long enough and we realize, I just can't do it anymore. It's like the poet Rumi who writes about the priest that prays for thieves and muggers on the street. Why is this? Because they've done me such generous favors. Every time I turn back toward the things they want, I seem to run into them. They beat me and leave me in the road, and I understand again that what they want is not what I want. Those that make you return for whatever reason to the Spirit, be grateful to them. Worry about the others who give you delicious comfort to keep you from your prayers. So sometimes it takes the difficulties to awaken us, doesn't it? George Brock wrote this as an extraordinary painter. He said, art is a wound turned to light. So this is the first boon he asked for. He asked for mercy and forgiveness. Another meaning of forgiveness is that you give up all hope for a better past. (laughs) You understand? Now what forgiveness means is not that you condone the the injustice of the past in any way. You may say that I will never let this happen again. I will put my own life, my body in the way of this abuse, of this injustice happening again. I will not let this happen. So it's not a condoning and it's not a forgetting. It's simply that at some point we can't carry the burden of our hatred any longer. It's a long process, forgiveness. It's not that you do it in a moment. It's something that's kind of like digestion of the heart. But at some point, we get to this place where we just don't want to put anyone out of our heart anymore. Most central to this forgiveness in the journey is the forgiveness of ourselves, of the suffering that we've been through and cause to ourselves and others, and the ways that we have blamed ourselves so long with so little compassion and so little mercy for ourselves. So the ground of this journey that this young man took, he said, I ask a first boon, and it is the blessing of forgiveness. And with forgiveness, with the water of mercy, we begin to come alive. The light begins to permeate and penetrate our heart and our being. It can't be there. We can't feel it without that. So death, Lord Yama says, granted. 
what would your second boon be? He's an unusual young man. He says, my second young boon, my second boon is this, what I would like is to be initiated into, to be filled with the fire of life, which has many words in the spiritual texts of different traditions. It's prana, chi, the life force, kundalini. What he's asking for is to be opened fully, his body and his heart and his mind. That's the next boon that he asks after forgiveness. And it's the fire of one's passion for truth. The awakening of the Dharma passion. It means not just getting through one's life or getting by, which we do in our kind of everyday sleepwalking states that we have, but something deeper to live from that place of our deepest sincerity. What is to give light must endure burning. So it's the fire within us. I've recently read a book that was one of the best things I read in years and years. Many of you probably read it a long, long time ago because it's an older book by Lawrence Vanderpost called A Far Off Place. It's the story of the journey of two young teenagers who get caught in southern Africa when their family is massacred and, in a sense, rescued by two bushmen, a bushman and his wife, and taken across the Kalahari Desert to escape. And partway across the Kalahari Desert, this long, quite amazing journey, somewhere across the Kalahari Desert, escape the people who are pursuing them and would kill them too, and escape the thirst of no water and found their way in to the middle of the desert, all of a sudden, one night as they're sitting around this little campfire, they hear this roar. And it's the roar of a lion. And the two bush people, two bushmen, get up and they start singing and laughing and say, it is he, it is he, it is he, just his utmost self. It is he, and, and they say, who is it? And they say, it is old black lightning, old black lightning. Where do they write this? Old Black Lightning is not really a lion at all, but a great magician who likes to hunt in the shape of a lion, and he's very friendly to Bushmen. He raises his voice in this way far and wide so that we can know where there's game and plenty for us to hunt. And when they hear the roar, it kind of shatters the night, and Francois, the boy who's there, the young man, begins to weep, which surprises his companion, girl who's with him who didn't grow up in Africa. And she says, why do you weep? And he said, there are four, the, the four most beautiful things in all of life are thunder, lightning, a falling star, and the roar of a lion. And he said, and I consider myself an expert on the roar of lions because I've grown up as a young man in Africa and we hear them around Hunter's Drift where I grew up. But until tonight, I never heard I never truly heard the roar of a lion. He said, because tonight when I heard this roar, I realized that all the lions in our part of Africa, where human beings have come and made farms and cut down the trees and destroyed the wilds, the wilds, their spirits are a little bit wounded and broken. And so they roar 
but there's something not right anymore about their roar. I heard a roar like this once when I was very, very young, but not since then. And he said, now this roar came out of silence like lightning, sheer, uncompromising, the most immediate of all roars I have ever heard. So this wonderful vision. As I just tried to picture the scene and remember, you know, the times of my own being way as far out as I've ever been in the wilderness, in mountains, or nature in the jungles of Asia, or climbing in the mountains, and the kind of pristineness of the mountains, and the songs of the streams that's really wilderness, where we haven't dammed them, and there isn't, you know, a, a, a mill wheel turning, or a, or a super highway that crosses it, and you hear the, the, the wheels of the cars in the distance. I somehow get reminded of what we've lost, of this connection to life that we are, but that we've come so far away from. And so what this young man asks is like the roar of that lion for the fire of life, to bring an awakening to his senses and a wholeness to his body and spirit, to live from that place of what we most value, from Rilke. He says, you see, I want a lot. Perhaps I want everything. The darkness that comes with every infinite fall and the shivering blaze of every step up. So many live on and want nothing and are raised to the rank of prince by the slippery ease of their light judgments. But what you love to see are faces that do work and feel thirst, who need as they need a crowbar or a hoe. This is to be alive. You have not grown old, and it is not too late to dive into your increasing depths where life calmly shines out its secret. What I want, you see, I want a lot. Perhaps I want everything. So this is the second boon, to have awakened this sincerity, this longing to come home, to live fully in one's life. In meditation, well, there's a saying that comes from the Gospel of Thomas, if thine eye be single, the whole body will be filled with light. And it's not a metaphorical statement. When one is really present, there's a light that illuminates you. It's present when you bring your whole spirit and heart and mind to something. And it's literally present in meditation when you become concentrated and fully present, people experience all kinds of light, clouds, visual experiences of, of uh, lights shining on them, uh, white light, colored lights, blazing lights like stars in the night. Sometimes one's body fills with light. I don't know why it happens, but it does, literally. And anybody who's done long retreats knows that or other such things. I'll interrupt this story with another story. <laughs> my teacher's teacher, Ajahn Chah, my teacher, his teacher was named Ajahn Man, and when he was a young monk practicing, he had that kind of sincerity of purpose. And he was traveling from village to village as a beggar in the forest, seeking the light within, that truth. And he came to a village up in the wilds where there were tigers and caves and the wilds of Laos and northeast Thailand,
And he said, any good caves to practice in around here? He said, well, there is one, the Sarika cave, but we recommend you don't go there, you see. The last ten monks who've gone, none of them have come back. This is a true story, just a generation ago. And he said, oh, just the kind of cave I'm looking for, right? So he went and he sat. And he spent a few days there and he became violently ill. He said, I don't think it's the food these villagers are offering. They offered it with great reverence. But something in this cave is making me sick. And so he said, there's nothing else to do. I will fast. He put aside his bowl and he sat. And he sat for several days, did a little walking and sat again and walked and sat and sat. And he got more and more present. He said, whatever this is that's making me sick, it's not the ordinary sickness. I shall sit through it. And he sat all day and all night until his body filled with light. And in the middle of the night, his body filled with light and it shined, the ca- shined in the cave and he opened his eyes and there was a tall black man, 30 feet high, carrying a club, 12 feet long, big around as his leg. He threatened the monk and said, if this venerable does not leave my cave, I will crush you to death with my huge club, which can crush an elephant to the ground with one blow. Ajahn Man looked back and communicated as one does in such situations with his mind and said, why do you want to kill me? I've done no wrong to you. Why should I deserve capital punishment when I have harmed no one here? The demon answered, I've been long in this cave and authorized to safeguard the mountain and will not tolerate anyone who dares to challenge me or attempt to overpower me. But I challenge no one, nor do I attempt to overpower anyone, the teacher, the monk said. It is simply to challenge and overpower the darkness, to overpower the the forces of greed, of fear, of hatred, of prejudice in my own mind that I've come here. It's highly inadvisable that you should harm me, a monk and a disciple of the Buddha, whose loving and kindness fills all the worlds. The monk continued, If you are someone who really possesses power, as you boast about, Do you have power beyond karma and dharma, the great laws that rule the masses of all the beings of the world? No, said the demon. The Buddha possessed the power of eradicating from his own heart the desire to dominate and harm others. Do you have that kind of power? No, the demon confessed. Then the monk looked further and began to admonish him, pointing out that his power, if any, was rather primitive and savage, being detrimental only to himself. Such powers will bring you fiery results. You don't realize that in consuming others, they only harm you. It is indeed heavy, unwholesome karma. And I'm a monk who walks with compassion. And here you are planning to hurt and kill me, thinking nothing of the evil that will drag you into the realms of woe. I care little for my life. Kill me if you must. But stop and consider whether there's any power in the world that can counteract the result of this. You're consumed by your own power delusion. Kill me if you need to. This world is a place of mortals, which includes yourself, deluded by power complexes. And the minute he did that, the demon reflected, and he shrunk in size from this huge figure with the club and began shaking and turned into this young, gentle, human form and said, I've been enchanted and stuck in this cave for a long time and it was put upon me that I had to guard it and it's only by the truth of your words that I've been freed from that enchantment. May I become your follower? He bowed. 
that's like the old time stories, only this was in 1922. It's my teacher's teacher. So somewhere in us, what this young man asked for, we too seek or can discover the awakening of that light within us, of that passion or that fullness, that presence that knows like the roar of a lion that there's something true and we want to live with that kind of fullness. Third boon then, what would you ask for? The young man says, what I would like is Amravati. I would like immortality. I would like to know the secret beyond death of the deathless. Yama kind of looks at him for a little bit. This is quite a big boon to ask for. (laughs) He says, are you sure? There are many things I can grant you. For example, and he causes by his powers there to appear first young maidens in splendid form as only young maidens can be. And as a young man, he starts to look. And Yama says, you can have any that you choose. You could have several, many, for as long as you wish, hundreds of years. He said, is that not enough? Then he shows him sports cars, you know. (laughs) The things he knows what young men like. He says, then he shows him honor, and he shows him a picture of himself as a warrior in battle and says, you can come back, go back and be the general. You can be acknowledged by everyone. Then he shows him children and grandchildren and that he could have this great, enormous, wonderful family. All these kind of temptations. And the youth watches them all. And when he's done, Yama says, well, which will you choose? And the youth says, I have a question to ask you. Will not all these things you offer me pass away and end up back in your domain? And Yama says, yes, as a matter of fact, (laughs) that's so. And the youth says, why do you tempt me with this stuff? It's not worth anything. That's not what I'm after. So I have it for a little while. So what? You know, young people know. A lot of them do. There's a young girl who's been staying in this valley, in San Geronimo Valley, with the rest of the children in her family named Rosa Anaya, beautiful young girl. Her mother brought the children up. She's a human rights worker in Central America, in El Salvador. And their father, who was the head of the Human Rights Commission, was murdered in front of the children at home. So she brought them up to be safeguarded in the families here. And Rosa, who's a teenager, uh, was just invited to go. You know, the UN is having, after the 20 last, after 25 years, the first Human Rights Commission gathering, a big one in Switzerland, where they didn't let the Dalai Lama speak. Imagine that. But anyway, there was a children's conference, and representatives from different nations went, and Rosa went to speak there. And then out of this children's conference, two children were selected to address the UN, and Rosa was one of them. And so she got up this morning to speak to all of the leaders of these nations and to speak to Butroskali. And she said, I want to speak for the millions of children who can't be here, for the millions of children 
who suffer and die because of adults, because the government leaders and the other leaders make war and make policies that politically and economically kill, harm, and enslave others. I beg you to find enough love in your heart to stop permitting this. And I ask that we have one minute of silence so that we can listen to the cries of those children who have come into this world only to meet suffering. And after the minute of silence, she brought out a picture of her father. She said, I want to show you this picture. To you, perhaps, it's just a man in a pool of blood. But to me, it's my father who died, who dedicated his life to the rights of human beings, who sacrificed his life. And what I ask of you is also a sacrifice, not just your words, but whatever it would take in your actions so the children will not have to suffer what I have. So children know, and it's part of what makes our responsibility for our spiritual life so compelling, because it's for our children and our grandchildren, not just ourselves. So again, Yama said, what is it that you want? Nachiketa said, I want that which is deathless. I want to open or awaken to that light which shines unshakable and unalterable. And Yama sensed, here is a young man who is a true yogi. What he sought, then Yama answered, what you seek cannot come by possession, by grasping, by gaining. It is not to be found somewhere else, but only by the deepest vision of your heart. You must meditate, said Yama, on your own true nature. And so the question that he asked him to consider is the ancient spiritual question, who am I? In Zen, the question is asked, who is dragging this body around? Or what was your face before you were born? Or as one great Korean Zen master who came to the three-month retreat in Barry and said, oh, you're all practicing wrong. It's at the end of the three-month retreat. Vipassana, no good. Right? <laughs> Only one thing. What is this? Just this question. What is this? Who am I? That is the question that will lead you to the deathless. And the Buddha said, gems and gold are like broken stones to me. The great Indian Ocean like a drop of oil on my foot. The centuries of change, the rise and fall of nations like the dreams of a dragon. I rest awakened in the middle of all things. This is to find one's Buddha nature. Now it is a tradition, a traditional belief in Buddhism that somewhere or other in the world, someone is always practicing the Dharma. And that if there were not, at any given moment, 
someone practicing the practices of wakefulness and compassion, loving-kindness, that it would be forgotten and die out, even if there was just one moment that it wasn't practiced. But for thousands and thousands of years, it has been taken up, this thread, this question, who am I, what is this, by another and another and another. And thus that light has been carried on. So when we come to sit in meditation, we do the practice that I've spoken of, of taking the one seat in the center of the world, opening our eyes and ears, our senses, and listening and sensing deeply. Who are we? What is this in the middle of it all? When I teach retreats, I say that I hope that what people will learn is to, what people will discover is that place within them that they can sit with someone who's dying and breathe with them and be unafraid, that they can be unafraid at their own death and therefore unafraid to live their life fully. When we can do this, when we touch this place in ourselves, our Buddha nature, our true nature, when we find that that can rest in the middle of all things, we become a lamp, we become a light. It's not far away. It is nearer than near. Life is this simple, says Thomas Merton. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story. It is true. It is here now. It's not far away. What we seek, that longing to be whole, that light, is here. And it's not to be found in gain or loss or possession of anything or some accomplishment or something that we try to become. But in the opening of our heart and our mind, the awakening of that, the wisdom I, as the Buddha said, I sat under the tree and it was as if a lamp overturned had been set upright and illuminated that which was in darkness. So on this longest day of the year, that light of the sun, which is us, which we carry, is a reminder. As Merton said again, if we could see as God sees each person, if we could see who we are in God's eyes beyond our notions of good and bad and sin and redemption, there would be no more war and no more hatred and no more racism and no more prejudice. I suppose the, biggest, the big problem would be that we would all fall down and worship one another. So this young man said to Lord Yama, I wish to find the deathless. And Lord Yama said, with your forgiveness and your sincerity and your willingness to look into this question, who was I before I was born? To find that presence within which all things arise and pass, you will come to know the deathless. I end then with a poem. That day beneath dark clouds 
I heard the voice of the world speak out. Life is no passing memory of what has been, nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart, after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert, fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man or woman throwing away their shoes as if to enter heaven and finding themselves astonished, opened at last, fallen in love with solid ground. So let's sit for a minute. It is not far away what we seek, it is nearer than near. Not one of our steps leads away. Forgiveness and mercy to ourselves. A sincerity, a fullness of presence. And this questioning, who could I be in the midst of all this? What is my true nature? Not these thoughts or feelings or body, they're temporary. Who could I be? starts burning. It's beautiful. It did. Wonderful flames. Ah, Thank you. Take a moment to reflect. What What is the moment recently in your life that touched you in such a way that you saw that light? What is the moment recently that brought that alive to you? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.